0: The Spruce Media Network. We live in a unique area. We come here for our own reasons. For some of us, our people have been here for an eternity.
1: This is Northwest Neighbor. Conversations with people living in Northwest British Columbia.
0: The following episode contains mature subject matter, including references to drugs and alcohol, as well as sexual abuse and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Northwest Neighbor, conversations with people living in Northwest British Columbia. Today, my guest is Michelle Pop. Thanks, Michelle, for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So you have a very interesting story, and we will get to that. Normally we kind of start from the beginning and work our way forward. But today I think we'll do the opposite. We'll start where you are right now and kind of work your way back. So you're an active mother of four. I am. And you're uh, quite involved in the community.
1: Yes, I am.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So what are some of the community events that the involvement in the community that you do?
1: Well, for the past four years, I've been helping out with the Aluminum City Telethon. I was briefly on the Kitimat Community Foundation board as well. But just with the telethon work, we decided it was best for me to step off the board for that. I am involved in Kitimat Dynamics Gymnastics Club. I sit on the board for that and I've been helping in the office. Basically, wherever there's been a need. A while, a few years back, there was the community supper club.
0: Right, right, yeah. Right,
1: yeah. So I was involved with that too in the beginning. And um, yeah, wherever there's a need, I just kind of just like, hey, that's a great idea. I'm gonna do that
0: too. Just uh, stretching yourself, you know, and there's so many people like you that volunteers and stuff like that. They just kind of stretch themselves thin like that, working um, with different community groups and stuff like that. So what makes you want to do that? What makes you want to help the community? Ooh,
1: that's a good question. I just, it took me a while to warm up to Kidamat, but now I'm just absolutely in love with it. And there are needs and the beautiful thing about this small community is that it seems easier to get those knees met, but it's actually harder. So it's a nice challenge to sort of overcome all of these obstacles to make sure that everyone is actually getting the things that they need, like the TSWs getting the things that they need and CUTE's getting the help that they need. So that's why I really like working for the telethon.
0: <laughs> right. So personally, though, what does that mean for you? Like personally, why does it affect you so much?
1: Well, this is the community my family's growing up in. And it's always like be the change you want to see. Right. And Well, I want to leave my kids a pretty good place to live. I want them to be in a community that is like full of unity and I don't know how to word it, but just a good community for them to live in. So, I mean, if I want my kids to have that world and it's not there yet then you kind of got to make it happen, you got to put the work in.
0: Right. Exactly. So now I do want to go back to the very, very beginning now. So now where were you born?
1: I was born in Kitimat. Yep. I was born in Kitimat in 1985, but I was adopted out because my biological parents had me in, well, she was in high school. Mm -hmm. So I was adopted out. I was two weeks old. So I lived here for two weeks. And uh, then I went to Prince George. Mm -hmm. And then my adoptive parents split up and I was three turning four and so then I was in between Prince George and Kamloops for my entire life and then as a 10 year old I decided I'm going to stay in Kamloops and yeah I sort of just stayed in Kamloops the entire time and then met my husband and he was working construction and so that that means a life (laughs) of traveling but then we went to Prince George for a year and then all of a sudden my husband got a call to come on to the Kitimat Modernization Project. And it was like, Kitimat? Really? We're going to go to Kitimat? I'm like, didn't I, I, I escaped Kitimat like how many years ago? We're going to go back there? And I had actually nothing, like no idea what to expect either. Right, right. So, I mean, it was a culture shock coming from like a big hub city to the little
0: one, but yeah. Right, right, exactly. So now if, if you can remember, as a three and four-year-old who was adopted how did that affect you personally?
1: It was pretty intense. Um, I actually... Oh, you really want to get emotional. Hey, oh, oh yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. We're going right. deep. We're going deep. Into we're the- going deep. <laughs> oh, I don't even do this with my counselor. It was huge. I remember sitting in the living room on my dad's lap and... um I didn't understand what my parents had been talking about the entire day, but I was in my room the entire day because they said, no, you stay in your room, stay in your room. And then finally it was evening. It was dark out and I'm sitting on my dad's lap. He's on a chair and I'm sitting there and I see my dad cry for like the first time. And he says, your mom's decided that she's going to leave us and she's going to go live on her own. And it was the first time in my life that I have ever silently cried Not a sound came out. I felt the lump in my throat. And all I could do was just sit there and just quietly cry because I had no idea like what was going on. Right. Just none. And I was perplexed. Like, what does that look like? What does that mean? How can this be? Like, moms and dads are supposed to be together. Why would mom leave? And obviously, you know, the the big questions, you know, like, was it me? Did I it was it me? Like, what did I do? And um, for a little kid, it's, you know, you own a lot of that.
0: Right, right. You
1: own it, whether it was intended to or not, no matter how well you can explain it, because, you know, you you don't have the concept of that understanding at the time. But yeah, I owned it for a very, very long time.
0: And so how did that affect you kind of going going forward? Uh, How did that affect your relationship with your dad? And how did that affect your relationship with your mom?
1: Well, in the beginning, I stayed with my dad because my mom was in no place to raise a child. Right. Because as soon as she left my dad, the reason she left my dad, as it turns out, is because, you know, she had had an affair and um, she had decided that she preferred the lifestyle of alcoholism and drugs. And um, my dad did not. So I stayed with my dad because she was just in no position. She was living that lifestyle, the welfare lifestyle of not wanting to work, but wanting to have it all with the alcohol and the booze and the partying and things like that. So I stayed with my dad, but he threw himself into work. Right. So a workaholic, if you will, he threw himself into his work. He was a very, very hard worker, always has been. And so his mom and dad, like 1917, 1915, they were born, ended up being my primary caregivers while my dad was always at work. And so, yeah, I learned a lot of like, really old school values up until I was about eight. Mm -hmm. And then my dad had met his second wife and then that, that sort of spiraled there, if you will, because yeah, when you have someone coming into your life, you know, as a child who's already broken, right.
0: It definitely can be difficult.
1: It is difficult because you're, why, why, why is she here? You know, am, am I not enough again? You know, and you go through all of these phases and because I was actually a hard child, like, you know, looking back now, I can see where my undiagnosed things were and I can pinpoint them in my life, like in the timeline and I can see where my behavior damaged my relationship with her. Like it's good now because we're adults. Right. Like it's fine. It is what it is. But as a child, like I did everything in my power to push that woman away. You know what I mean? Everything in my power. And um, it worked. I mean, did not have a relationship with her for the longest time, which meant that I didn't have a relationship with my dad. And that's,
0: that's kind of tough.
1: why I went to Kamloops at around 10.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So how did your life change once you went to Kamloops?
1: Well, when I went to Kamloops, like I kind of knew what I was in for because my mom was still in the party scene mm-hmm. and I had been there on, you know, like holidays and things like that. You got to do the split home thing where you go on the summertime, you go on spring break, you go on Easter, you go on Christmas. And so I, I knew what I was in for and what I was coming into in Kamloops was actually a really it was a rough time because the entire family was like still harsh alcoholics. There was drugs going everywhere. My cousin Sean had just been shot in the head and we were dealing with his recovery and stuff because that happened when we were 10. And we were dealing with his physiotherapy, his reeducation. You know, my granny was fighting the government to get care, foster care of them.
0: Right, right. And
1: so there was like a lot going on, but it was perfect because I could disappear and I could just go and do my own thing. And I became very self-sufficient. I became very self-reliant. I almost put up walls at that time period. You know what I mean? So like everyone in my life had disappointed me in some way or another. And I clearly go around causing hurts. Like this is what you think when you're a kid, I'm the one causing the hurts. So I'm the one that's going to remove myself. So it was good, but it was bad because when you're in a house that's rampant with alcoholism, drugs, and I mean like drugs, like I found out what heroin was at a very young age. There's all the other things that go along with it. Like there's the brokenness that the adults are passing on to the kids there's abuses, you know, there's sexual abuse, there's physical abuse, there's verbal abuse. Yeah. All sorts of, there's all sorts of things that happen there. So I think that that phase of my life was really where I learned how to rely on myself, but that kind of set me up for failure a little bit later in life. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Because it was just too self-reliant, if you will.
0: So, so was that kind of your coping mechanism, kind of being self-reliant to kind of make things work for you?
1: Yes, because I, I just had this conversation. It was like, you can either sink or swim. And I was like, sink. I didn't even know that was an option, you know? So you've got to keep pushing through, you've got to keep swimming. So yeah, the self-reliance, it did. So for example, let's just go back there. You want to go deep, we'll go deep. So for example, (laughs) we had no food and I don't mean like, oh, there's ingredients, but no food. I mean, like the cupboards were bare. I remember, I went to go and make myself a lunch one day. I opened up the cupboard and there was like an inch in this cupboard of just silverfish, which is a form of cockroach and Kamloops. And it was barren. There was no food. And I had turned 12, which was the earliest that you could start volunteering at the old folks home, which was right across the street from my um, elementary school. Right. And I had discovered that if you volunteer during mealtimes, they feed you. So I spent a lot of time, a lot of evenings volunteering at the old folks home and on the weekends I would go for breakfast and lunch as well and I would just hang out with all of these people who they just wanted company too, you know. Right, was right. so it's have kind of a win-win win situation. It was, but it was very selfish on my part because I was always looking forward to the food. <laughs> right,
0: right. Right. Well and and you know but that's your survival instinct, right? That's mm-hmm. what you had to do to survive at that time. So how did you get out of that situation?
1: How did I get out of that situation? All right, let's go deep. Okay, so basically there was one party to end all parties Mm -hmm. that my mom had had. And it had gone on for three days. Just it had gone on for three days. Everyone had been drunk for three days. Everyone was stoned. Everyone was high on whatever they were high on. And we lived in this duplex. So my auntie lived in the other side. So the party was moving back and forth between our side and their side. And I hadn't had any sleep, hadn't had any food, hadn't had anything to eat. And I, I broke. And I said, I got up and I started yelling. But when I went to get up into the living room, then like I noticed my mom was on the couch with another man who mm-hmm. was not my stepdad, her second husband. And. It just sort of like unraveled from there and I didn't know what to do. So I'm like this, how old was I? I think it was like 11 and a half, maybe 12 years old. And so I grabbed the first thing I could think to grab, which was like a hammer. And I was like shaking this hammer at this grown man. Like you right. need to leave, you need to leave, you need to leave. And my stepdad comes into the house and he's angry and he's six four, and I'm tiny. Come on, I'm five foot one now. Right, so right, I was yeah. even smaller then. And I did this like spider monkey jump. And I remember I like grabbed him by the throat because he had taught me how to choke hold people. And so in my head, it's like, I'm going to do my best to prevent this man from doing whatever he wants to do to that man. Right. Right. And so I'm like, ah, and then he falls to the ground and he's like coughing, sputtering and blah and everything. And I just looked at my mom. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Oh, yeah. And I was like, that's it. This shit has to fucking stop. I'm done i have nothing left to give you people i was like and i've got school in the morning so smarten the fuck up and i went and i slammed my bedroom door and um it wasn't shortly after that that my mom sobered up
0: so that was a wake-up call for her
1: it was a wake-up call for her yeah and she had sobered up um the rest of the family had not so they were still living their best lives but my mom had decided to sober up and she went put herself into a course so that she could get a job working for the Provincial Air Tanker Center as an office assistant. Okay. And she had actually stayed sober from that time until I turned 19. So I had an effect at some point, I guess, just standing up. So she
0: really did it for you then? Is I think so.
1: I actually do think it was for me because the moment I moved out when I was 19, she immediately went back to it.
0: Right. Right.
1: So... I honestly do think it was for me at that time.
0: I do. Where is she today?
1: Right now she lives in Saskatchewan. She lives all by herself. Her third husband passed away. And so she is all by herself in Saskatchewan, living in one of those tiny little podunk towns in a house that thankfully she owns. And she just spends her time trying to occupy herself around her community.
0: Right, right. So is she still living that same lifestyle?
1: Yes and no. She's not drinking anymore, but the unfortunate thing is about I'm going to say 7 or 8 years ago she found hydromorph and the osteoarthritis, osteoarthritis was a great excuse for hydromorph. And I tried having her come live with us for a bit because you know Rick had passed away, so I was like, okay, we're going to try this out, but to see her sitting there nodding off on the couch and Her anger when she was coming out of things, it was just like, no, like I made the decision years ago when I was going to have a family that I was not going to raise my kids amongst all of this garbage. Right, right. And so because she was still so damaged, I just didn't want that influence on my kids at such a young age. So we had to ask her to leave and go back to Saskatchewan. So, I mean, I I have tried over the years.
0: Right. But all you can do, right?
1: I mean, an addict who doesn't want the help isn't going to seek it right it's kind of anything beyond that is just enabling (laughs) so i just sort of let it be (laughs) yeah
0: no that's uh you can only do so much right the person has to kind of do it for themselves
1: yeah if if they're not doing it for themselves it won't work you know which is evident because she clearly sobered up for me to get me through my teenage years and then immediately went back to it and then as soon as you're She's on her own again, right?
0: Right, right. So now you're, you're, you're speaking of your dad. Um, he had his second wife. Mm-hmm. And you were saying that you didn't have much of a relationship with them, but you do now?
1: Yes. Yes, I do now. It switched when I was an adult. I tried very hard as a teenager to please everyone. And I actually did go back to Prince George for about half a year of school. And this is where like my undiagnosed phase is still in, right? So I went there and I did my best. I tried so hard to please them, but they're very rigid people Mm -hmm. and they're very, I'm going to say unforgiving just because like, that's a truth. Whereas they might say, oh, I forgive you, but their behavior still is a very unforgiving behavior. They have come a long way on that in the past few years, as have I, so that's good, but when I went to Prince George for that half a year, I had this mask on the entire time and it was brutal. And I actually started, I was 14 and I started smoking pot at school because, you know, by the time I get home, everything's fine. But I spent every C block just stoned <laughs> and, um, cause it was right after lunch Right. And then the bus ride home just stoned and then I'd get home and it wasn't much of a life because I was very isolated there because we lived outside of town Mm -hmm. and it was very much like I was just, mm, I was just the, the elephant in the room. Like I was there because I had to be, I wasn't there because I was welcomed. I wasn't there because anyone wanted me around. It was, well, she has to be here because she's Roger's daughter. So there was my stepmom, her twin sister. Um, my brother, who my dad also adopted, he's six years younger than me, and then my cousin from my stepmom's twin sister, mm-hmm. and he's six years older than me, and then their mom, who I called grandma, and then me and my dad. <laughs> so there was it's a lot quite of us. A full yes, full house. it was a giant house though, so there was a lot of space. But you know, like, yeah, it was it was quite brutal. It was very emotionally neglecting. There was no safety. There was no safe space to just feel what I needed to feel or be who I wanted to be. You know, like my clothes were picked out for me. I had schedules every night. You have to shower every night. You wash your hair every second night. You have to blow dry your curly hair. I have curly hair. Okay. And I had to blow dry it with a brush. Like, come on, prove that it was blow dried, brush my teeth for X amount of minutes. Like it was very regimented. It was very like chores for this amount of time. You must do them properly or else you're redoing them. And not just indoor chores, like outdoor chores too. And in some way, like I can understand what they were trying to impose on me. Like the routine helps me now. So having a routine now helps a lot. And once again, this was an undiagnosed phase of my life. Right. So, yeah, it was just very emotionally neglectful, very verbally abusive. And I say that not because they sought it out, but because well, maybe they did seek it out a little bit, but it was just any time there was the ability to make a nasty comment, it was there.
0: Right, right.
1: You know what I mean? Any time there was an ability to criticize, there was never any encouragement. It was all very discouraging, criticizing, everything's wrong kind of thing. And so after about six months of that and, you know, being a pothead now and starting smoking, I had to go back to Camloops. Despite, you know, even though I was leaving all of the Kamloops stuff, right? Like I was like, okay, I'm right. going to go back to this loop's life. And it's like, well, you know what? It's easier because the physical things that happened to me, my body could overcome. The emotional things that were happening at my dad's, I was having a hard time overcoming. So it was easier for me in my head. Like if you get hit, bruises heal if you get sexually molested, well, that goes away. It stops, you know, it stops at a certain point, but the emotional words, the verbal abuse, like that stays. And the, the discouragement, the the lack of encouragement that stays.
0: Right. And that has some, those long-term effects because they're going to affect your personality. Those Mm -hmm. are going to affect you to the core.
1: So I went back to Kamloops. It was almost a relief to go back there because it's like oh, okay i can go back to my self-sufficient self-reliance independent lifestyle where I'm, right i'm right. only answering to myself so i had spent one year of high school in kamloops mm-hmm. and but their term system didn't like the way that they did it they did a b c d e f g h all year long so it was just all eight courses all year long and so, so there's no like
0: semester kind of system yeah
1: so when i came back to kamloops because i had come from a semester system school which was you know a b c d for half the year I had to try and get into a different school that was also working on the semester system. Oh my goodness. The only school was a term system and they had two courses for a term and they would do this, you know, wow. th- yeah. And it was intense because you're <laughs> literally half a day in one class, half a day in another class.
0: Get really boring.
1: Oh, it is so <laughs> boring. And this is still in my undiagnosed phase. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh,
0: Wow, so schooling system is such a different learning system that you were used to. How did that affect your learning?
1: How did it affect my learning? Academically, I have always been fine. Like you give me a book, I read the book, I take the test, I pass the test, usually with A's and B's. As a student, I never struggled. As a social being, I have always struggled. I did not make anything more than superficial relationships, save for There was one person in my life She's still in my life. 25 years, my best friend. When I was 10 and I moved to Kamloops, we met. I pissed her off in the first day (laughs) of knowing her. And then all of a sudden we've been best friends for 25 years. So that's like probably the deepest relationship I've had since. But then my husband, right? So because of the social struggle, the anxieties, the fear, it was like a real fear of going to school every day and sitting in these classrooms every day. The most random fears pop into your head like, what if you toot? Oh, what if you do this? What if you say that? Or what if you upset this person? And, and I cared a lot back then what people thought about me.
0: Right. Like right. I
1: did. So I started skipping school. Yeah, started skipping school and go smoke pot. Right? Yeah. I skipped school, go smoke weed. Why not? It's easier to skip school. So I ended up getting kicked out of that school and yeah so then i had more free time so i got a job (laughs) i had to i had to do something right so i got a job and then i started like online gaming and stuff with my free time that was fun i'm not gonna lie to you like it was like one of the (laughs) first mmorpgs and it was like the greatest ever quest just putting that out there and uh So my friends were still in school and it was the craziest thing. So I would skip school mm-hmm. and take the bus all across town. It took an hour and 10 minutes on the bus in Kamloops, by the way, wow. an hour and 10 minutes. Kitimat has nothing to complain about.
0: Yeah, no, exactly.
1: Um, and I would go to my original high school where mm-hmm. the vice principal, Mrs. Hove was still there. And I'd walk in and would be like, hello, can I please have a guest pass? And Mrs. Hove would give them to me only because she couldn't fathom a world where a child would skip school to attend school. You know what I mean? But I was happy there. I was with my friends. So I went to my happy place. So I would skip school to go to school. Anyway, that lasted for the rest of the year. And then I started a new school, which wasn't that school either because I had courses to catch up on. And this is actually like where the bomb went off. It was called NorCam, Mm -hmm. NorCam Secondary. And they were a semester system. So I was taking grade nine courses, grade 10 courses at the same time. And in the first half of the semester, and it was in early October, just before Thanksgiving. And I had not completed a homework assignment. And it was for a teacher that I actually cared to complete my homework assignments for. And something snapped in me. And I remember standing in the smoke pit something snapped in me to the point where this group of people that i was with some of them left and all of a sudden i'm in the counselor's office because i guess the things that were coming out of my mouth were along the lines of you know i just can't do this anymore i fail at everything i can't handle my life nothing i do is ever good enough i just i can't keep it up i can't keep trying to please all these people I need an out. I need an out. I just want out. I don't even care what it is. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I just need to do it. I just need to get it done. And I was suicidal. Right. And it all sort of just came out in that one little smoke break. And thankfully, my friends went and brought me to the counselor's office. But unfortunately, after that, I did. I ended up in the psych ward in Kamloops. And I was one of the youngest kids there. And being in a psych ward is not fun because number one, you're surrounded by adults who are also in the psych ward for their reasons. And there was a lot of bad stuff that went on there. But I was there until January. Wow. Yes. And a lot of it was because I would not participate in group activities. I would not participate in the counseling I wouldn't participate with my psychiatrist. I wouldn't take my mask off and tell him things. He, he had no idea. And then I was at such a low place. They used to have lamps beside the beds. Used to. The nurse found me in the bathroom. I had taken the lamp and I had smashed the light bulb and I was slicing my wrists and my legs. And that was when I, I kind of started taking it seriously. Right. Right. You know what I mean?
0: So with you having that realization that this is something serious, all kind of snowballing from that day at the smoke pit, mm-hmm. what told you in your head that things needed to different things needed to happen, that things needed to change?
1: I needed answers. You know what I mean? And it was this... I still like I had known that I was adopted at that point. This is where it kind of comes in my life all around these answers. And I'm a very analytical and inquisitive person. So I like to know answers to things. I like honesty. I like upfrontness and the stupidest thought, but it came into my head that, well, what if there are other people out there that love me? What if there are other people out there that can give me what I'm lacking? Right. Right. And I thought to myself, maybe just maybe if I find these people that I've created in my head, then I can get through it. And, but I didn't find them until many, many, many years later. But the other thing that was in my head was my grandma, my dad's mom, one mm-hmm. of the ones that foundational upbringing, by the way, they were very Catholic. Yes. I was a very Catholic person. And so it was if you kill yourself, you'll go to hell, right? Right. That's what you hear as a Catholic. And um, it's like, okay, well, I certainly don't want to go there because this life has been hard enough. And I remember thinking to myself, like, if this is life and hell is worse, (laughs) like, oof, can I do that for eternity?
0: Right, right. You
1: know, like, can I? No, I can't. I certainly can't.
0: So that was always kind of in the back of your head. Yes, it was. you think that helped save you?
1: I do, I do. So I guess I can give the glory to God on that one because Even if it's just a bunch of Catholic guilt, I would say it did. It did help save me. And I missed my grandmother a lot when she passed away. And one of my goals, one of my goals was to see her again in heaven. So, (laughs) you know, like, well, shoot, if you go to hell for this, you won't.
0: Right. Right. So. And and you know what? Like, everybody does it differently, right? And, like, that's just kind of knowing that, too, and those thoughts in your head to kind of bring you back to, to where you are. Yeah. So now fast forwarding a little bit or in the psych ward, how did you get out of there?
1: I finally started participating. I opened up to my psychiatrist. He had a conversation with my parents and I decided like my dad came from Prince George to Kamloops to talk to the psychiatrist and I'm sitting outside the room, which was not soundproof by the way. And I could hear the psychiatrist and I could hear my dad and I could hear my mom in there and they were all trying to figure this out. And my dad said, this is all just attention seeking. She's just doing this to seek attention. And it was at that moment in my life that I was like, those are not my dad's words. Like those are his wife's words. Right. And that's when I realized that my dad was a parrot. And I was like, okay, so if this man is just parroting, like what does he actually feel? And the, I remember the psychiatrist saying, are you a fucking idiot? Even if it is for attention, don't you think it should be dealt with, you know? Right,
0: right, exactly.
1: So he sort of shifted in that moment to, oh, okay, my kid has a problem.
0: So was that kind of the saving grace right there with that conversation between your dad and the psychiatrist to kind of shift him into a more of a, a role of understanding that you do have a problem?
1: I think so. I think so, because from then on, my dad always made an effort to come and see me when he had like long weekends. He would come to Kamloops or when he was going through to Sycamus, he would come. It was more encouraging for me to go back to Prince George and see him. He put the effort in. Right. You know, whether or not his emotions were there, he was trying his best to do what he could, which was put the effort in.
0: Right. Which right, is a sign exactly. of love. That exactly, was his love language. Exactly. Acts of service. Exactly. Everybody And everybody everybody shows love differently.
1: Yeah. But the thing about the, the being in there is that I still wasn't as opened as I could have been. Like that did not come until I was an adult. Because when you have like OCD, ADHD, <laughs> bipolar, and you're all of these stigmatized things. Right. The reason people stigmatize you is because they only hear the negative of it. Right. Right. And so the negative when you're inside of the brain is severe and what's written in a textbook is like the Disney version of what goes on inside of you for real. It actually is. So I still like kept people at arm's length because Mm -hmm. there was still that chunk that I still felt really bad for. And like I had been to, confession for it, you know, and I still couldn't tell the priest everything, but I was like, oh, what about this? And the priest was like, well, that's just bad. And I'm like, oof. So right, right. there was no, I, so I, I pushed it down just because I was like, okay, it's clearly just in my own head. It's not coming out on anything and nobody's really like noticing anything and I'm doing a good job of functioning. So I'm just gonna leave that part out of my functioning life. But later on in life, I, I came to the diagnosis, which was the understanding.
0: And so with the understanding Mm -hmm. and also with the stigma that people were putting upon you, Mm -hmm. how has that changed your life? Has it with your diagnosis, has it kind of lifted a weight? Oh, the weight
1: came off completely. Like the first thing that I was diagnosed with was OCD. Mm -hmm. And that was because I couldn't do the dishes. And I know it sounds so silly, but I could not do the dishes. And then I noticed that, you know, like, why do I keep doing these same things? And and why do I keep having these thoughts? And, you know, like, I can't do this until I do this until I do this. And um, I went to a counselor and this is while I was in Prince George. So this is mm-hmm. like nine years ago, because we've been here eight years. So nine years ago, go to this counselor and she's a specialist in certain mental illnesses like OCD and ADHD. And she says, okay, well, first of all, we're going to work on the OCD. She says, because from everything that we've been through, you're a pure O, which is the obsessive part without right. the visible compulsive behaviors. So what I've done in life is I've developed tics mm-hmm. that are socially acceptable that people can't really tell, right? right? It's a self like a self-run
0: right. coping right. tools so yeah. that I taught
1: myself. So people like wouldn't know that I was having these obsessive things, yada, 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 because I can do my tics. So I'm a puro and she sent me to this counselor at public health in Prince George, mm-hmm. And I sit there and it's this gentleman and I'm just like, okay, another counselor, more therapy. You know, I've been doing this since I was a child. Okay, let's do it. And he says to me, he's like, okay, so can you give me an example of some of your obsessive thoughts? Right. And I'm like, no. And he's like, okay, I'll start. Hi, I'm blah, blah, blah. I have OCD. I have Tourette's. I have, you know, and he's like listing all these things off. And I was like, huh, and you're a counselor? And he's like, yeah. Is like, I'm going to give you an example of one of my obsessive thoughts. And it was very near what one of my obsessive thoughts was like, I don't want to share his because I don't even remember his name, but it was very near one of my obsessive thoughts. And my obsessive thought was if I touch a knife, I'm going to stab someone. Mm -hmm. Right. So I couldn't do the dishes because there were knives in the dishes. And if I touch a knife, I'm going to stab someone.
0: Right. Even though I haven't. Yeah. But just the, the, that thought process, that
1: thought process. Yeah. And so that's a very similar to what he, so he opened up his, which was almost exactly like that. So I shared that knife one with him. And that's when the ball started getting rolling for the progress. I felt like I could be open. I was like, okay, there's no judgment here because this person is exactly the same as me. And you know, like the internet and the forums and stuff like nine years ago, we're starting to actually like get good.
0: Right, right, Well, yeah, exactly. That was like the like 10 years ago was like kind of like the birth of what we see as the internet today.
1: Yeah, exactly. So there was more information, more forums, more groups. There was a community of these people. And I was like, wow, I'm not alone, like at all. There are millions of people exactly like me out there. Right. And um, like later on, I would discover, you know, like ADHD and then a bipolar eventually, right? Yeah, so... But still, even so, there are so many people struggling with all of these things that you never have to feel alone. Because even if you just reach out to this random stranger who's probably in Britain on the Internet and it's like, have you ever felt like this? Or, oh, you made a post feeling like this. I felt the same way. Um, What are some of the things that you do to it's like there is community there.
0: There's that relation. Yeah, and that kind of just even being able just to talk about with somebody who understands
1: exactly. And so, what I did from that point on was when I realized, hey, I'm crazy. It was okay. It's okay because that's who I am. So the past, you know, nine, eight, nine years have been me unapologetically living my my life. Excellent. Yeah. I no longer really care what people think about me. There are a select few. Like, obviously I care what people think about me. I don't just want to do whatever I want. (laughs) I mean, I would like to be, what's the word? Like not revered, but like, you know, esteemed in the community. I don't obviously want to be the jerk of the community. So I'm out loud with the fact that yes, I have mental illness. Yes. My kids have mental illness. Thanks to me. I'm able to, better understand my parents because Mm -hmm. they were damaged people, you know, and I'm able to see, Oh, okay. Yeah. You've got something going on there and, you know, just love my parents for who they are despite all of their broken and damaged parts, even though they don't want to face any of them.
0: (laughs) That actually brings me to my. Do you blame your parents for, for anything because of this?
1: Do I blame my parents for anything? There was a time when I did, and I have worked through my trauma so much, like between therapy and church and online support groups, more therapy. Shoot, I've done therapy for a long time, like over 15 years of my life. And it, I think that people have this expectation where it's like you go in, it's like, bam, okay, problem solved.
0: Right, but it's right. like,
1: it's literally taken me like 17 years of it being in and out of therapy when I've needed it to get to a place where I'm at now.
0: And it, but it has definitely worked for you.
1: Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, there's if you're sick, if you got a broken leg, you go to the doctor. If you got diabetes, you go to the doctor. Right. If exactly. you got a mental illness, you go to the doctor that can help you, which is a, a counselor, psychiatrist, psychologist, whatever. You go to a therapist. It's it's no different. You have a broken leg. You go to the hospital. Right, you have a right. broken brain. You go to the therapy. Do I blame my parents, though? Not anymore. I used to, I used to blame my parents a lot. I used to blame my mom, especially because of what she allowed to happen to me for 15 years of my life from her second husband, which was molestation, sexual abuse, that kind of thing. Right. And something, but the understanding, like confrontation leads to understanding. You know what I mean? So when you, when you confront a situation with a truly open mind and you develop that understanding, that understanding kind of paves the way for, for forgiveness and a love, Right. And she's so broken. Like, I'm I'm actually going to share it. You want to go deep? We'll go deep. This is weird and deep. So my mom comes from the same lifestyle that they lived, right? right? So the alcoholism, the drugs, the sexual molestation, everything. My granny's second husband sexually molested my aunts and uncles, but never my mom. Okay. And so this woman, this child, teenager woman actually lived her life feeling like she was less than because she wasn't selected for that type of behavior. And I know it sounds completely crazy. Like, are you kidding me? Uh, You really, you would want that, but it was the rejection that she felt in this disgusting situation. And And so she felt that because it was happening to me, I was in a place of almost honor. You know what I mean? And when that realized, and I, what I was like, woman, like you need Jesus.
0: <laughs> and with you saying that it it is totally because that's what she's used to. That's, yes. that's what's normal in her life. And that's really unfortunate that that's something that's normal.
1: That was her, norm, her normal, life. but it didn't have to be my normal.
0: No, exactly.
1: It's not my kids normal. Praise the Lord. <laughs> like I, <laughs>
0: and, you know, good for you for, you know, for kind of rising above all of that, for having all that adversity. <laughs> And then just rising, rising out of it and making you the person that you are today, the wonderful community leader that you are today. Oh, thank you. The, the mother of children, uh, you know, like, it's excellent. Thank you. So getting back to that. So now with you discovering your mental illnesses mm-hmm. and being okay with them,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how did that affect relationships going forward from there?
1: So I've worked on myself a lot since living in Kidmat. So like I said, eight years we've been here because it was 2012 when we moved and um, I'm at a place now where I can receive love because I've learned through therapy, through church, through my relationship with my higher power, which is God. I've learned love. Okay. So almost the, I've learned what it should be and how, and I'm still learning how to love myself so what I do is I shower other people with it. <laughs> you know, like I try, I try my best to be the need that that person has, you know what I mean? Like, well, not the need, fill the need that that person has, right, sorry. Right. So I want to be the answer to that person's, not in, in a way where I'm like going to sweep them off their feet and save their lives. But I mean, when you see someone having a bad day, all it takes is an, a word of encouragement Or a reminder of something good, you know, or, Hey, what did you do? Oh man, you did that today. That's amazing. Kind words. I've started looking people in the eyes. Not right now. Don't judge me. (laughs) Because the eyes can really tell you a lot about where the person is. And there'll be some people that I'm like, are you okay for real? Because it's okay if you're not yeah, you know?
0: saying something different.
1: Yeah. So I carry forward trying to give everyone, not just the people that are close to me, but like the people that I meet, everyone should have the benefit of the doubt that there might be something wrong or that they might need to talk. And I will always be that ear for that person. You know, like I actually still like, cause I had done Alan on and brought that group back for a little while here. And now it's going on on its way there, but I still have people who reach out to me when they're struggling and it doesn't matter the hour of the day because I will, I will encourage them. Even some of my family is trying to get sober. So they'll be messaging me like I'm having a really hard time. I want to go back to the crack pipe. And I'm like, eh, maybe not. Right, right. <laughs> what else can we do instead? You know, so I try to make myself available to the people. And I actually find myself actually caring about them because I have been in such deep, dark places. And like I said, if, if that's life on earth, hell, ooh, So I don't want people to have to go through that. I mean, I understand that they do and I don't want to rob them of their opportunities of growth and, and life and stuff. But even if you see someone stuck and you just grab their hand and you try to unstick them a little bit. So my relationships going forward, full of honesty, full of love as best as I can give it. I mean, I'm not perfect. I still, I get angry. I still have crazy days, you know, and sometimes I emotionally respond to situations, but always admit when I'm wrong which is something my parents never did but I will always admit when I'm wrong and it might take some people a little bit longer to tell me I'm wrong because I need to figure it out for myself but <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean
0: yeah yeah oh. now one of the reasons why I asked you why you like to do things in the community cuz I knew that it would kind of circle back to this so long story short that is kind of what your ans- the answer of why you like to do the things that you do yes in the community So now with being adopted, Mm -hmm. has that affected, like you did go on a search for your biological parents. Yes. And how did that go?
1: Well, I found my biological mother Mm -hmm. about five years ago now. And it was good in the beginning. And then I was like, oh, it's just more broken, damaged people. It's more addicts, more lies more, you know, all of these things, not everyone, but I mean, you know, like I'm still really tight with my sister and it's just, they had their own story that was going, going on. And when I had come in, it was like (sighs) chaos right in the middle of a family storm. Right. And it was just like, okay, but I just really want to get to know this woman that was my mom. And there was always this like superficial relationship. It never really got that deep, but I still had questions and I was always, pushed aside, pushed aside, pushed aside. But last March, I decided I was going to go find my biological father because now there are several sides to the story. And I have the paperwork from 1985 that says one side of things. Mm -hmm. There is what she told her parents, which is another side of things. And Mm -hmm. then there's his side of the story, which I was missing. Right. 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 And so I've been inclined to trust the paperwork from 1985 Because it was written at the time it was written. All of the scenarios were there, you know, like it was this, 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 this. And I had realized that she had told her parents a different story when I had called her parents asking them to help me with this. And they rejected and said, no, we're not going to help you find this guy. And I was like, well, why not? I mean, he wanted to marry her and raise me. Right. And she was like, oh, I didn't know that you knew that. Wow. I know. And I was like, "Mm, you didn't know that I knew that.
0: That's a, uh, wow.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. So I actually didn't get the paperwork until about five years ago. Before I just started because my dad found it in his safe, and um, when I had found it, I was back in Kitimat, and I was like, oh, cool. It's got. I'll just. I just got to write to the government to get something or whatever. So it was fifty bucks. Sent it off to the government got back the unblacked out. Like, you know, it's like CIA documents where you get your copy, but it's like, all, all blacked redacted. out. Yeah. yeah. Like <laughs> the dog happy, you know, It's like, Oh, what is the rest? So they sent me back the paperwork. And, um, I was like, man, it's kid mad. It's a small town. Like everyone knows everyone. Right. Right. And, um, my neighbor, a couple of doors down has kids the same age as me had kids or still has kids the same age as me, but she doesn't live there anymore. Neither do I. And so I messaged her and I asked her, I'm like, Hey, do you know this last name? And she's like, yeah, I graduated with one of them. Just give me a minute. And like within the hour, she had the ball rolling for me to find my biological family, just like for the maternal side anyway, because that's all I had was that last name. Right. Right. And so it was really crazy that it was just like, just ask one random person in Kitimat. And oh, I know that name actually tappity 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 boom. Small town, small town perks (laughs) (laughs) saved me $250 to the government. So that was cool. But then trying to find the biological father was harder because I had no name. Mm -hmm. I had no concise age. I had an age group. I had gender. Thank goodness. (laughs) You know, so we knew we were looking for a dude and we knew that he had a sister named Pam because it came out in conversation one time and it slipped. And so my other friend and I, since in March, like we started this whole thing, we're trying to find, trying to find. So going through yearbooks, trying to look for Pam's, trying to do this, trying to do that. And she had put it on the, on the Facebook and, um, all of a sudden the maternal side of the family started commenting on the posts and trying to start all this drama. Right. Right. Yes. But despite their best efforts, we found him Mm -hmm. and he thought he was being trolled, so we took I took a DNA test and he took oh, wow. a DNA test. I yeah, it, I paid for it. It all went through and boom, 99%. This is your child. And he was like, "Oh. <laughs> okay. Hi." Hey
0: there. <laughs> He's
1: like, "Because <laughs> his side of the story came out." So, she had told the social worker the exact situation that had happened. Right. Okay. She had told her parents that she was raped and because her mom was head of the birthright or like pro-life society in the Catholic church at that time. Okay. You're going to have an adoption. You're not going to have an abortion. It's the right right. thing to do. But then his side of the story lined up with what the paperwork had said, where she had told him that I was an ectopic pregnancy and I had terminated. Oh. And so that I was never fully carried to term. So he,
0: he didn't know that you were born.
1: No, he lived his entire life assuming that I had died, but, because they how rumors are with small towns, he had had gotten word that Siobhan, you know, and a part of me person. And then um, I can bleep that. Up. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, yeah, he was very surprised. But in 1991, his, his dad had passed away. And just in case I existed, he thought that I was being raised by her and with her parents still here in Kitimat. So his dad had passed away. He sent a lawyer to the house. To try and give like a part of the will to the grandchild for financial support. And Mm -hmm. that was the last time that he had ever tried reaching out again because they were like, we don't know what kid you're talking about. There's no such thing. Yada, yada, yada. You have no right. These sorts of things. Right. Anyway, so but we found each other and it was a very big surprise. It was pretty cool because uh, he's a card carrying Métis and I've always felt a call. I <laughs> knew it like I knew I had indigenous blood yeah. in me and that was like I think one of the coolest things and then he's got kids too right so mm-hmm. now I have another brother and sister right so I'm right. From, yeah so well, that's kind
0: of neat your family's growing
1: it is growing it is unfortunately my maternal side like I said has dropped me since March to dropped my kids too and I think that that's the most painful part but once again because I'm in this place of having understanding for broken people I forgive her. Right. I do. I forgive her. I understand that she's living in her fears. She's living in her anxieties. She's hiding from the truths. And I hope that she gets the opportunity to freely speak the truth and set herself free. But I mean, things are going quite well with him. He lives in Manitoba, though. So we're actually going to go up this summer to like a neutral location in between the provinces. And we're going to meet.
0: Oh, very nice.
1: Yeah. And the kids can meet, too. And they've been hands-on grandparents from a distance ever since. Right. And it's just wonderful because my kids have this relationship with their grandparents, you know, like that's actually pretty cool.
0: How does that make you feel?
1: It makes me happy. It does. It actually makes me happy because all I wanted was better for my children. And I'm working on my dad to like my adopted dad to spend more time with them and just kind of like appreciate the cool people that they are Yeah. and get out of his, you know, must parent, must discipline phase and just enjoy the people in his life. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, the company.
1: Yeah. And these people, the a biological father and his wife, they just love freely. They just love freely. And it is sort of like what it is like, it's kind of like me, right? Like if you ask me for a truth, Oh, you're going to get it. Whether you like the
0: truth or not, So maybe that kind of passed down from him (laughs) to you. Maybe. I think it's like
1: genetic, (laughs) you know, being blunt (laughs) is a genetic thing. Um, Yeah. But I mean, it does. It makes me feel complete. Like I have found all the pieces of the puzzle. It's my choice what I do with those pieces. But I feel pretty good. My kids are happy. My husband and I have a good marriage, you know, so and that, that was rocky in the beginning too. But.
0: Was it hard for you to have that kind of a relationship in the beginning?
1: Yes, yes, it was because he was actually an alcoholic Mm -hmm. when we got together. He sobered up in 2011, but that was my comfort zone: alcoholics, alcoholism, partying, that kind of thing. Actually, when we had gotten together, I was in quite a place of chaos myself. That I dabbled in drug use and stuff too. Right, right. I the last time I touched drugs was also 2011. So, but since 2011, we've been trying our best to fix our damage without any insight sometimes or any, just knowing that there's a problem, but knowing, not knowing what the problem is.
0: Exactly. Sometimes you just have to wing it and hope for the, hope for the best.
1: Exactly. And it's like, ah, there's a new life challenge. How do we fix this? What is this challenge called? I don't know, but I don't like it. So we've got to figure this part out. And so, yeah. And then, yeah. So since about 2011, we've been really working ourselves
0: out Excellent. Well, I'm super happy to hear that. That is all the time that we have today, but thank you so much for coming on and telling me your amazing story. It's really inspiring. And during the break, we were talking about how counseling really does work. And for anybody who is having any issues, I really do urge you to go and seek the help that you need because it does help You're living proof of that.
1: Yeah. Most churches have pastors who will counsel for free if you don't have any benefits. And public health, if you have your MSP card, you can call public health at any time. They might have a bit of a waiting list, but at least you can get in and get seen and develop a relationship with a counselor.
0: Definitely. And there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with getting counseling. It shows that you're a strong person to be able to work on those issues that you have.
1: Oh, yeah. Like I constantly tell my children who struggle with anxiety and stuff. It's that the fear is always going to be there. And being brave doesn't mean the fear goes away. Right. It just means that you just stay courageous through the storm of the fear and you overcome it.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining me again today.
1: Thank you for having me, Devin.